Uh, you might not know we're doing a series on Genesis that we're continuing this morning, and uh, because we're not doing children's church for the summer, we're starting off with uh, something that's more geared towards the kids so that they can uh, pester you when you get home to make sure that you paid attention and ask you some good, some good thoughtful questions. So, kids, where are you? Let me see you. All right, there's a few of you here. I brought some supplies today. Uh, so most of you probably remember, because you remember a lot of things, that we've been talking about trust a lot lately and faith. And I've been asking you to think about and ask your parents what it means to trust that good things are going to happen even when you can't see it right away. Do you guys remember that? We talked about like birthday cakes and Christmas presents. So my question to you this morning is, how many of you make a habit of running into the street We've got one. It was the pastor's kid. All right. Most, mostly not, right? Why? Because it's sort of dangerous, okay? So let's say that you're out and you're maybe shooting some hoops with your mom or dad or you're kicking around a soccer ball and it goes into the street and you watch your parent look both ways and then they say, okay, you can go into the street to get the ball. Would you do it? Yes. Yes. I mean, you could try to see if they would go get it, but probably they're going to make you do it. Now, let's say that there's a crazy guy in your neighborhood. We'll just call him Crazy Joe Davola, okay? And let's say Crazy Joe has a habit of daring kids to do things that are dangerous just because it makes him laugh, and it's not okay. And Crazy Joe comes up, and he says, yeah, you should run out into the street. It's totally fine. Would you do it then? No. What's the difference? It's because you actually know your parents. So trust isn't just something that happens in a vacuum. Trust is placed in a person. You actually trust someone because you know them, and you know that they have your interests in mind when they tell you to do things. So, what I would like you to do this morning is come on up and get some crayons and a piece of paper, and I would love for you to draw a, a picture of what it means for you to trust your parents. Draw me a sign of what it, some sort of picture of what it means that you trust your parents, some setting or scene when that happened. Try to share the crayons and the paper. And then here's what I want you guys to do. Are you still, you're still with me here as you're grabbing your paper? After you've drawn your picture, I want, and let's just, let's just cap this at 21, okay? If you're, if you're over 21. <laughs> if you're old enough to not eat crayons and young enough to still kind of want to try them, you can come get some crayons. Here's what I want you to do, though. When you show your picture to your parents, I want you to ask them, Not about what trust is, but what is it about Jesus that they find so compelling that they would trust him? Okay? All right. So you can draw up here if you want, or you can go back and sit down. Uh, Just, you know, try to to keep keep it quiet. All right, that went rather smoothly. We'll see how it ends up. Oh, I need the crayons back. So don't eat them and don't steal them. Those are for the nursery downstairs. Let me read our Old Testament reading and pray for us, and we'll get started. This is from Genesis chapter 22. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey, 
He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, as we consider this morning again what it means to have faith, to be able to trust in you, we are confronted with, with a scene that just makes no sense. It's honestly outrageous. And we need your Spirit to illuminate your word for us, to warm our hearts, to help us understand that you are trustworthy. God, I ask this morning that we would come face to face again with the great love of Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. Some of you might remember Faith Jansen. Uh, Faith used to be our uh, children's ministry director, and now she and her husband Brian and their kids are missionaries in Taiwan. Um, a couple of weeks ago, some of you might have gotten this too, I got an email from Faith that, that said she took a surprise vacation to Singapore with her family, and they got robbed, and everything was gone. And so if I could just send her a little bit of money, that would be great. And for a second, I was thinking, well, they are, I mean, I don't know how far Singapore is from Taiwan, but it's closer than here, so maybe, maybe they decided to do that. And I, it, for a second, I was sort of like, Maybe I should write her back and just say, hey, you know, did you get the money? Is everything okay? 
And then the more I thought about it, I realized, well, that doesn't sound like faith at all. She would never send me that sort of email, even if things were absolutely horrible. She would still have something in there, if you know faith at all, about how good God is and how he's providing for them, even in the midst of trial, and if I could pray for her. That's what she would have said. And then, of course, a few hours later, her husband Brian emails back everyone and says, oh, her email account was hacked, we're safe at home, we don't even take vacations, we're missionaries. (laughs) And what I realized is that even though it sounded like faith, because it was from her email address, it really wasn't anything like her. And it was my knowledge of faith that allowed me to, to react to the situation appropriately. Well, this morning... We have arrived. The Abrahamic narrative has taken detours. It has dropped down into the darkness of doubt and made a long, arduous journey up the mountain of trust and faith. And though Abraham has a few more scenes after this one here, this is really the climax of his story. And boy, is it a doozy. This is one of a handful of problem texts in the Christian scriptures. I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but this is one of those, those passages that folks like Richard Dawkins and other people in the New Atheist School love to talk about because it seems on the face of it to be just absolutely immoral, absolutely outrageous. And when you just read it, you can kind of almost see what they're, what they're getting at. I mean, doesn't God seem sort of codependent? And even if it is just a text, or or a test, excuse me, as it says at the beginning of this passage, how traumatized is Isaac? What kind of God needs to prove points in this way? And even if we can get beyond just the level of sort of moral ickiness, how are we to understand a God who is so self-contradictory? Because in other places he says that he abhors child sacrifice. What are we to make of the fact that it's only after Isaac has literally had a knife to his throat that God knows that Abraham trusts him? Is God really so needy and insecure that he needs us to be willing to kill our kids in order to prove that we trust him? Well, I would suggest that if we're going to make sense of this story, then just as we've been doing all along through Genesis, we have to to look at it in its own context. We, We can't just parachute in. If we were to parachute in and just take this story, I think at first glance, anyone with their emotions switched on would be repulsed, should be repulsed. Because just taken by itself, it doesn't make sense. But what I hope continues to be made clear during our times together is that Scripture is not nearly so clean and easy as we would like it to be. And in fact, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, that God is both illuminating and confounding that he is both fire and cloud. And so we can't just expect to understand him right away. It's going to take some work. So I'd like us to look at the layout of this story and think about how it fits into its broader context and then try to understand what the narrator is trying to get us to answer, what the narrator is trying to tell us. Now, if you've uh, followed the career of Chevy Chase, you know that he took a big dip there in the 90s. But he did have one movie where he played a doctor with a gambling problem. And he's listing all the things that have ruined his life. And, and what, one of the guys listening says, wait, are you telling me that you took a bet in Rocky Four and you bet against Rocky? And Chevy Chase says, well, hindsight is twenty twenty, my friend. Which is true, generally, but I think in our case, hindsight may actually cloud some things from our vision. So allow me to work through some of the details of this story as we try to develop a fuller picture of Abraham and this God that he's interacting with. 
So it says that sometime later, this is after God had fulfilled his promise to Abraham and Sarah. If you've been with us for a while, you know that for chapters, they've just sort of been trudging around the desert, waiting for God to actually make good on his promise. And he does. He gives them Isaac. And sometime later, he comes again to Abraham to test him, and he calls him by name. Now, this idea of testing is a very complex thing in Scripture, and it's not entirely clear what it means that a God who stands outside of time, that a God who in other places is said to know everything, even the small, quiet thoughts of our heart, what does it mean that he needs to test Abraham, that he needs to know something about his faith? Well, it ultimately, I, I think, will remain a mystery as to what it, what it means that God is testing him. What we can know about it is this, is that God has chosen to interact with his creatures in real ways. He doesn't just stand outside the physical system that he's created and then pretend to be involved in some sort of divine game. No, he he actually enters in, and in covenanting himself with humanity, and in this case, with Abraham's family in particular, he is covenanting himself into a real relationship, one in which he actually experiences things with his creatures. So though we often think of testing someone with negative connotations, there is a very complex set of meanings around it in Scripture. And yet it's describing a, a, a complex but also rather simple reality that God inhabits creation with his creatures, and he actually responds and interacts with them. I don't know how that fits with the fact that he is sovereign and all-knowing. I just know that that's what Scripture tells us. So in a sense, what we could say that this intro is telling us is that sometime later, God purposed to experience something with Abraham. God was actually looking to be in relationship with Abraham and experience something with him rather than just stand outside and have a distant knowledge of him. It's probably been at least uh, 10 years since the birth of Isaac. And yet what we see is that when, when this God, when Yahweh calls to Abraham, Abraham responds, here am I. And he actually does that three times throughout this passage. The, the NIV has sort of glossed over because twice he says, here am I, to God, and once he says it to his own son. Anytime anyone addresses Abraham, he just responds with, here am I. Our narrator is showing us that Abraham is a man ready to be addressed, that despite his moments of doubt, his times of distrust that actually led him to be dishonest with those around him, Abraham remains ready to be addressed by God. Even 10 years at least after the birth of his son. We know that it's, it's got to be at least that because Isaac is able to carry this load of wood up a mountain. And yet Abraham still sees himself as a creature of the word. He has not forgotten that Isaac was promised by the word of God and then given as a gift to him. And this is where you can see that just within a few short verses, we have an entire massive story, and yet our narrator is actually making choices to get us to try to feel some of the emotion of what Abraham's going through because he lays it on pretty thick. He says, take your son, your only son, the one that you love, Isaac. God isn't reminding Abraham which son he's after. There is only one. Ishmael and Hagar have left. They're long gone. The narrator is trying to show us that even God understands this is a difficult task. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there on a mountain I will show you. Now, 
the, the command that God is giving here actually mirrors and echoes the very first command that God gave to Abraham. Go. Go to a place that I will show you. And yet here it seems completely backward. Now it's been suggested that Moriah, this, this place that God is sending Abraham to, is actually the site of the future Jerusalem. And so centuries later, when Abraham's descendants actually inherit the land, and David makes Jerusalem the city of God where the temple will eventually be built. It's almost as if this story is giving us a proto-history of what sacrifice is because this, this scene takes place probably on the same mountain as the Temple Mountain where Israel would, would enter into ritual sacrifice for years. So it's, it's showing us what sacrifice is and how it fits into the covenant between God and humanity, which we'll get back to in a moment. Now, we have to set aside our moral outrage for a moment at the very thought that God would actually ask someone to sacrifice their own child because, I mean, what is happening? God has gone to great lengths already to assure Abraham that it is through Isaac that the promise will be fulfilled. It's through Isaac that Isaac is the offspring that will eventually blossom into a nation, that Isaac is the offspring that will eventually have kings come out of him that Isaac is the offspring that will eventually turn into a multitude that will inhabit the land that God has promised. If you don't have an heir, land is meaningless. This is not some big spiritual lesson that Abraham is on. It's very, very physical. So what's happening? He already tried doing it another way, and God said, that's not the way. It's going to be through Isaac. And now God's saying, go and kill him? That doesn't make any sense. And what does it mean that Abraham just goes along with it? He doesn't say anything. And I think this is where our hindsight actually trips us up quite a bit. Because from our cultural vantage point, if one of our neighbors came up to us and told us that they were hearing the voice of God and that God had told them to go sacrifice their kids to him, we would make this face. Oh, I think I left my fridge running. Let me go check. And then we would run inside and we would call CSD, right? I mean, that's insane. But that's not what life was like in Abraham's culture. In fact, Abraham probably knew of or had at least heard of some of his neighbors whose gods had commanded that their child be sacrificed in order to appease them. You see that Abraham is still getting to know this particular God, Yahweh, the God that claims to be the true God. And so when Yahweh tells him to go sacrifice his son, he just fills out his picture of what he thinks he knows about this God with the cultural clutter from the false deities of his neighbors. And by the way, we do this all the time, don't we? We do it with our politics. We do it with our our persistent little hobby horse theologies where we think that we know what's more important to God, and so that's the big thing that we're going to build our life on rather than actually letting him set the agenda But as I've said before, the author of Genesis is about convincing us that Yahweh is the only true God, that he is the God that created all that is, and that this God doesn't use preexistent matter. This God has not been locked in battle with evil for an eternity. No, in fact, the rest of Scripture fills out for us later that this God is a triune God, that he exists eternally in love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in creating all that is, he is actually inviting his world to experience that love and that life with him, in himself. And the fuller picture of God that we get throughout Scripture is that he is absolutely holy and just in his judgments. And yet he is profligately loving toward people that don't deserve it 
that he is completely free and sovereign. By nature of his being God, he can go unquestioned. And yet he is unbelievably faithful. He's unbelievably gracious, and he has bound himself to his world in covenant. But Abraham doesn't have that fuller picture. He doesn't really know any of that. He's had a few strange interactions, and now he's in triple digits. Think about the amount of times that we have heard God come to Abraham and speak. It's only a handful, and dude is at least 110. This doesn't happen all the time. It's not like it's happening every day. He's had a few strange interactions that were obviously compelling, and he has some data that he can look toward and say, this God is a promise-making and a promise-keeping God. But he doesn't really know if, how, or why Yahweh is any different from the gods of his neighbors, the gods that he left behind in Ur. And so when Yahweh comes to Abraham with something that sounds actually not horrifyingly strange, but exhaustingly familiar, he says, sacrifice your child. And Abraham just assumes he knows what's coming next. But see, this is different. Because Yahweh is doing this in order to show Abraham not how alike he is to other gods, but how vastly, vastly different he is. You see, God could have just stood outside and said, you don't know me at all. You've conflated me with all these other ideas about who God is and what I'm about, and you don't know me at all. But he doesn't do that. He actually enters into an experience with Abraham and allows Abraham to think of him as a God different than he is, to pull him through the darkness to the other side where he is a God who provides. He is going to change Abraham's understanding of himself by experiencing something with him, not by just giving him more bits of knowledge. It's here that our narrator again slows down the action Think of the details that have been put in here so that we see that Abraham responds to this request with obedience, but it's just exhausting. He gets up early, and he saddles his donkey, and he takes two servants and his son Isaac, and then he starts cutting up wood. He cuts up enough wood for a burnt offering. And they set out for the place that God told him. And it's about a three-day journey into death. And you can almost just feel him just numbing down as he trudges through the desert again. What is happening? What are you asking of me? It feels like you're ruining my life. But it's almost as if on this journey that Abraham begins to run through his mind all of these interactions that he has had with Yahweh, with this God, trying to assess the data. Is this God actually different from all the other gods? And he remembers the promises that this God made to him and how even when he and Sarah were as good as dead, God gave them a son right at the exact time that he said he would. He remembers his vision of smoke and fire and blood when God actually covenanted that he would do this. And then he remembers the day of Isaac's birth when it came to pass. He remembers giving Isaac the sign of the covenant, marking him out as God's promised child. And as he's rehearsing these promises and fulfillments, he sees the place in the distance. And in faith, he tells his servants, wait here, the boy and I will go up, the boy and I will worship, and the boy and I will come back to you. Abraham has known that Yahweh is a promise-making, 
promise-keeping God. He has known it. And now he needs it to be true. He needs it in the very core of his being. He needs God to intervene. Because Isaac is the child of promise. He needs Yahweh to be different from all the other gods of his neighbor, neighbors. And that is exactly what this God is about to show him. And it's in the moment when Isaac finally brings up the elephant in the room, the fact that they have everything for the sacrifice except the thing that has to be killed. And that's when Abraham responds with just absolutely incredible faith. And he says, son, Yahweh will provide himself the lamb for the burnt offering. And this is another one of those places where it's so easy for us to gloss over Scripture and the complexity that's there because a lot of, a lot of the detractors of, of this sort of story and this sort of God want this story to be about God's need for blind trust on the part of his creatures. But there is no such thing as blind trust. There's a difference between a crazy person telling their kid to run in the street and a parent telling their kid to run in the street. You always have trust in a person. God is not asking Abraham to trust him blindly, to just have a vacant faith that is dark and filled with nothing and stumble around through gory ritual without thinking. In fact, it's quite the opposite. God is here giving Abraham more data, more information, more experience about who he is, about what kind of God Abraham really finds himself interacting with. And it is a God completely unlike the demanding, petty gods of his neighbors. This God, the true God, God will provide himself the lamb for sacrifice. Well, I hope that that's becoming clear, that, that it's becoming clear that God is not showing himself with this interaction with Abraham to be more like the other gods of the ancient Near East, but actually to be completely different from them. Even, even if we can bring ourselves to see that, this story is still laced with scandal. Isaac has to climb up on the wood and get tied down. Abraham raises the knife before God actually steps in. It's scandalous. It is scandalous that God actually has unmet requirements, that he requires taking so that he can then provide. It's scandalous that even though Isaac is spared, a ram just happens to be there. These are not the sort of scientific odds that our culture appreciates. And frankly, it's scandalous that the ram has to be slaughtered. I mean, that alone we wouldn't want our, our children to see, most of us. So even if this God, even if Yahweh isn't interested in child sacrifice like all the other deities of this time period, why the need for barbarism at all? And this is part of the picture that the author of Genesis simply doesn't shy away from. That the true God has actually set in motion a world in which his will should be done. That he is placed at the center of his garden, creatures that are his ambassadors to the rest of his world that are to go out and do his will, to mirror his will to the rest of creation. And yet in making those creatures in his image, he's actually made all of us to be willful creatures. And willfully we, we rebel. Willfully we stumble off the pathway of life. And because God has mysteriously bound himself relationally to this world, there is a reality to the shredding of the relational fabric of the world. And frankly, God has too much respect for his creation, himself, and his creatures to pretend that this disrepair is not real. Some of you are aware my wife and I bought a, a fixer-upper house last year, and many of you have uh, silently and, and graciously just been put to work. And many of you have seen it in various states. 
And one of the biggest issues was the bathroom. The bathroom was one of those bathrooms where you're uh, actually dirtier for having taken a shower in it than you were before. It was just really gross. The, the, the caulking was just sort of like hanging around like soggy bread. It wasn't actually keeping the water from leaking back behind the surround. If you had to pull on the little, little handle on the surround, it would just come off the wall, you know, and you would just fall out. It was a pretty, pretty gross bathroom. And it was, it was dumping shower water into our basement, It didn't really actually connect. It was just, I mean, you know, part of it went out, but a lot of it just kind of fell right down. So we could have have tried to not hurt our bathroom's feelings. We could have just said, you know what, let's just throw up a little bit of paint. We'll put up a new surround and actually caulk it correctly, and it'll be fine. But that wouldn't have actually solved the problem. There was so much mold behind the surround. There was so much mold all over, and there was still water dumping into our bathroom or into our basement. And so a couple of you who are actually sitting here came over for a lot of hours and helped me tear that place apart. And renovation takes work. It takes demolishing some things in order to rebuild them correctly. And in cutting ourselves off from the very source of life, we have ripped apart the relational fabric of the world, and that requires setting right. As I've said over and over throughout this series in Genesis, God doesn't just deal in some nebulous spiritual realm. He's incredibly earthy. He deals in dust and death. And when you interact with this sort of God, with a God who refuses to pretend that reality is something other than it is, there will be blood. We've been battling toward death and destruction. And if we're honest, we all have murder in our hearts because we want to be in charge. We want to be God. And that's the thing that is so ultimately scandalous in our culture. It's not that there are things happening that are wrong out there. We have no problem making definitive moral judgments about any sort of thing happening out there. The scandalous thing is recognizing that the things that are wrong out there are mirrored directly with everything that is wrong in here, in our own hearts. Not only that, but there is no dog and pony show that I can ante up to try to fix it myself. That in fact, all of our attempts at finding our own solution have just led us further into death. This is premise one of Christianity. That God is holy and just in his judgments. And that what is required to repair and renovate his world and his creatures is the blood of sacrifice. But the second and more central premise of Christianity is that this God, the true God, sends his Son his only son, the son that he loves. He sends that son to come and be the sacrifice. You see that it's not just that God will provide himself the lamb of sacrifice. It's God will provide himself, comma, the lamb of sacrifice. But just as we saw a few weeks ago that God actually gets the blood of the covenant on his feet to uphold his end of the bargain, Then he comes and takes on flesh and sheds his own blood, holding up our end of the bargain. That in response to our failure and rebellion, God the Son takes a three-day journey into death outside Jerusalem and becomes himself the Lamb of Sacrifice. Friends, as we come to the table in a moment to celebrate that again, to celebrate the fact that God himself has become our sacrificial lamb, we do so in recognition that God is unwilling to pretend that nothing is wrong. And so there must be blood 
but he is unwilling to let us go, and so the blood must be his own. Let's pray together. God, we confess that we still do not understand you. We don't understand your ways. We often don't understand the things that you ask of us. As confounding and horrifying as your moments of silence are, sometimes when you speak to us, it's even more confounding. And yet, in your spirit, as we are, we are convinced in our hearts of who Jesus is, as we come face to face with you, with the clearest expression of you that has ever been, Jesus in the flesh, taking on all of our sin on the cross and rising again to provide us new life. May that be the answer to all of our questions. Even in the midst of confusing interactions with you, may we always look to Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen.